We're going to uh, review this evening the high points of the various things that we've looked at uh, during the previous uh, several weeks, but let's start with this. So I'm just wondering, I too get asked at many lectures my view on God, and my typical answer is that, sure, there could be a God that's behind it all, and what we're doing as physicists, chemists, biologists, working out God's laws, and if that's how it is, I am thrilled to be part of that noble journey. I then add by saying, look, there's no evidence for that. I don't see any reason to believe that. And if what we're doing is just working out the laws of physics or chemistry or biology, and that's all that you need for a universe, I'm thrilled to be part of that journey. So the bottom line is, you know, from a sociological, from a historical viewpoint, religion's very, very interesting, but it's kind of profoundly uninteresting to answer the deep questions because I feel like all I'm doing is replacing one mysterious set of words framed scientifically with another set of equally mysterious words that are framed non-scientifically. Yeah. Now, I should say, after I say that, I always apologize because <laughs> I am all for hedging your bets. I'm you know, not beyond that at all. Um, What do you think of that view? What do you think of that view? So there are really only two possibilities. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of things in life that we say, well, it's, you know, it's not black or white. There are shades of gray. But when it comes to the God question, there, there are really only two possibilities. It's binary. It's a zero or a one. It's on or it's off. You're pregnant or you're not pregnant. There, there's not an in-between condition with respect to whether or not you view God as a reality. You either accept that there is something above us. You might be uncertain as to what that is, but there's either something above us or there's not. There's nothing at all. There's only those two possibilities. Now, you can say, well, I want to hedge my bets but that's like trying to have one foot on the dock and one foot in the boat. And you know from your own experience that just doesn't work. With respect to the God question, you're all in one way or the other. And why is it important? Because you're going to die. I have said on occasion, let's consider the two possibilities. Let's consider, by the way, 6.15 for communion and get your kids and I may not be finished, so you got to watch the clock. Let's consider that you're correct and there is no God. So I've lived my entire life as a faithful Christian believer. Yes, I've missed out on some orgies and, you know, some sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But generally, I've had a good life. I've been a good person. I've, I've been a good citizen. I've raised good kids. I die and there's nothing there. What have I really lost? Now, let's do the alternative and say that you've enjoyed this life of sex, drugs, rock and roll, and, and, and uh, all those things, ignoring God, and you cross over and he's there. Is it worth the risk? You see, with the two possibilities, you're looking at these things. The theist says that there is a superintelligence above us who designed and created, who gave us order and organization. There is a purpose to what he has done. He is 
transcendent overall. He was before and after. He's personal, and there is a life after this one. The atheist says that, no, there is no such thing. Everything happened by random accident. There is no purpose. There is no meaning. The universe doesn't care about you, and there really is no right or wrong except for whatever rules that we might establish amongst ourselves. And by the way, it's okay to do it. Just don't get caught because, you see, there is no higher standard. So my right is right for me, even if it's not right for you. It's okay for me. Now, if it's against the law, no problem if I do it so long as I don't get caught. That's the atheist view. And this is a view that's... uh, you know, kind of understandable, really, if you don't want any rules. And aren't we all kind of wired that way, really? What's the very first word that newborns learn? No. And what's the second word? Mine. Is it not true? It seems that somehow we are wired that way. Well, that carries over into adult life as well. And Thomas Nagel, Ph.D. in philosophy from Harvard, had said, it's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. And that is really at the root, the atheist view. And uh, Dostoevsky summed it up this way, if there is no God, everything is permitted. So we ask the question, the God question, does science offer anything in our understanding, in in the development of our opinion, is there a God? Does science have anything to offer uh, to that? Well, the first thing is scientists themselves will admit that they don't actually prove anything. Oh, we got to have sound again. Is that me or you back there? Science, in some sense, never Let's proves anything. Let's try to uh, start it's... over. Now, those predictions have always been theories. Uh, how do you then go about proving a theory not to be a theory? And is that what we've actually done here? Has it been proven? Well, you know, science, in some sense, never proves anything. Uh, it's all about gathering evidence reaching conclusions because the overwhelming amount of evidence goes for one model rather than some other model. So we're looking for evidence then. What does the scientific community offer as evidence? Now, it is true that the prevailing view in the scientific community today is atheism. Atheism. Uh, The estimate is that roughly 60% of science professors are atheists. And if we think that they are casual atheists, you're wrong. They're radical atheists. Their goal is to persuade their students that everything they've learned at home and in church is wrong. Now, they're PhDs. And our kids are high school graduates. So are they going to believe them? Very often they do. And so it's perhaps shouldn't be a surprise once we know these facts 
that a lot of kids leave the church when they leave home. But does science really, really support the idea of uh, atheism? It's important to realize, I think, that science has always been wrong. Now, we might truthfully say that as we learn more and eliminate more and more bad ideas that we are getting closer to truth, and that probably is a true statement, but science in itself has always been wrong, and here are just some of the big things that they've been wrong about. Earth being the center of the universe, spontaneous generation, that is, life just pops into existence. And by the way, that view was held until just a couple hundred years ago. Louis Pasteur, you're familiar with that name, pasteurization, uh, the germ theory. Louis Pasteur was the one that put to bed the idea that life didn't just spring up out of nowhere. Uh, Bloodletting to cure illnesses, the universe is eternal. Remember, that was just Well, that began to be seriously considered in the 30s. And in the 1950s, the the last scientist finally threw in the towel and said, okay, there was a beginning. But right up until the 1950s, science believed that the universe was eternal, that the universe was static. And, of course, not very long ago, we had talk about cold fusion. So where does the evidence lead? Let's go back to where we began after, on that second week when we talked about cosmology, there was a beginning. Now, if there's a beginning, there must be a beginner. What was before the beginning? Something had to cause the beginning. Well, the Big Bang, as it's now known, uh, obviously required a, requires a cause And as yet, science has no natural explanation for that. Now, let me take that statement back because that was actually not true. Science does have two explanations for that. Uh, The first is that there are many universes, and we just happen to be in the right one uh, to observe the universe. The rest of them probably are lifeless. We just happen to be in the one by random chance by which there is, in fact, the possibility of life. And the other is the expanding and contracting universe. So we just happen to be in this big balloon that blows up, and then it contracts, and then it blows back up again. The curious thing about that to me is that science is all about empirical evidence. Science is about establishing testing, and the term they use is falsifying. In other words, we can take this idea and test it, and if we can prove that it's false, well, obviously we move on to something else. There is absolutely nothing ever testable, ever will be testable, about a bouncing universe or a multiverse. And yet, if you're an atheist, you do have to have some explanation for the beginning. And that is their explanation. There was a beginning. We can't deny that any longer. And the Big Bang has to have a cause, but science really offers no cause for what that is. The universe is also expanding. And, of course, for a long time it was considered to be static. Until this same time frame it was considered to be static. How does it expand? What provides the force or energy that causes that 
to expand. Well, we're actually going to talk about that a little bit later, so not too much on that. But the point is, science does not have an explanation for the force that causes the expansion, the continued expansion of our universe. This is a graphic uh, prepared by NASA that uh, kind of roughly illustrates the current scientific thinking uh, from this big glow on the left, the Big Bang, and here we are way out on the right uh, where you and I live today as the universe has expanded out. And uh, I'll just have you make a mental note, if you will, kind of right there on the left. Do you see that term called dark ages? Just keep that in mind for next week, the dark ages. I'm not going to talk about that now. <laughs> so physics, we talked about physics. All the laws that govern the entire universe, physicists now agree, were present in that first instant. They have not evolved. The laws that govern the formation of the planets, the movement of the galaxies from one to another, the formation of stars, the formation of the heavy elements, how everything works together, how it all interacts, all of those laws were present at the beginning. The four forces that govern everything were present at the beginning. The strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, electromagnetism, and gravity all formed in that first trillion. I used to say billion. It's even shorter than that. Trillionth of a second. All formed together in the beginning. Do you recall we talked about, we, we, I didn't talk about, we watched PhD physicists talk about the fine-tuning of the universe. The universe is finely tuned for the formation of stars. It's finely tuned for the formation of planets to revolve around those stars. It's finely tuned for the collapse and explosion of those stars, which formed all the heavy elements that make up our Earth. Our own sun was not one of the first stars. Our own sun was formed after the explosion of other stars, and our Earth came after that. And our universe is finely tuned for life. Do you recall just the one example that if gravity had been 1% stronger, those stars would never have formed? The explosion of material would have too quickly collapsed. The stars would not have been able to form. The stars would not have exploded. The galaxies would not have formed. We would not exist. If gravity had been 1% less, everything would have blown away too quickly. The stars would not have formed. The galaxies would not have formed. The stars would not have collapsed. The sun would not have formed. We would not exist. One percent difference in gravity. Could it have been any more perfect? How was it perfect? How is it perfect if it just was a natural cause? The Goldilocks enigma is uh, the term used to describe this fine-tuning for galaxy and the formation of life. Let's watch this. Just as I can't believe that there was a creator, I can't believe that this all happened by chance. 
which implies there was a creator. So you see, I'm, I'm in a completely uh, hopeless uh, uh, bind, and I've stayed there. Again, I find it hard to believe that this is all a matter of atoms and molecules. And so I try to fit into my concept of the world uh, the uh, conclusion that there is a larger force of some kind, which we can call God, or you can call it whatever. And I find I, but I can't accept that. I'm uh, what's called a materialist in philosophy. I believe in, that doesn't mean I like Cadillacs and big cars. My students always used to think that. It means that I believe the world consists entirely of material substances. And when you specify those substances, the atoms and molecules, and the laws by which they interact, you've done it all. There isn't anything more to, to be said or inserted into your model of the universe. And that's what my science tells me, and I'm, you know, I've been a scientist all my life. Uh, but I find it unsatisfactory. In fact, it makes me uneasy. I feel I'm missing something, but it will not, uh, I will not find out what I'm missing uh, within my lifetime. If you uh, reverse the motion, the outward motions of the galaxies, and go backward in time, they come closer and closer together, and you reach a point finally where they're nearly infinite in density and temperature, and, and farther than that you can't go. So there's a beginning, there's a, a, a point in time from which it all started. And that's a remarkable thing because it has a very strong theological flavor to it. And that intrigued me because I am a, uh, an agnostic. And uh, if there was a beginning, a moment of creation in the universe, then there was a creator. And a creator is not, a, not compatible with agnosticism. And I thought that, I found that message so interesting that I, I felt a strong compulsion to share it with others. And so that's why I wrote that book. So chemistry. Well, the only possible way, the only possible way that you and I could be here today in an atheistic environment is that somehow inorganic chemicals found their way together in such a way that life sprang into existence. And that, of course, is the theory uh, behind Darwin's theory of evolution. We're going to talk about biology in a minute, but the point being that life began in the ocean, in a warm pond, might have been in a deep cave, inorganic materials formed in such a way that life sprang into existence. Well, if that were true, uh, surely there would be some way to test that. And of course, thousands of hours, and I'm sure millions and millions of dollars have been spent trying to do that. And you recall we talked about the uh, experiment in the 50s, Stanley Miller, uh, who did this little experiment and actually produced amino acids. Now, we discussed amino acids and how they are the building blocks of proteins and uh, how then proteins uh, form together to form the functional parts of the body. Well, it turns out that amino acids also exist on meteorites. So really, any work that we've done to prove that we can make an amino acid in the lab 
doesn't really prove anything because nature makes amino acids all by itself somewhere, somehow, if they come to us on um, meteorites. Uh, Louis Pasteur, mentioned him earlier, uh, was the, the scientist who, the, he was a biologist, by the way, uh, who coined the term, life comes from life. And that has uh, been uh, the scientific uh, dogma uh, until this rise of atheism, um, oh, in the last hundred years or so. But so far, uh, chemistry has not found any way uh, to produce a cell. And you recall, I think this is the, I think this is the video of James Tour talking about how, despite all the work, it's impossible to produce a cell. How many, how many organic chemists are here? Okay, do you know what I'm talking about? Isn't this true? It just doesn't work. None of this works. And this is what they publish paper on after paper, and it gets into nature and the science. I'm like, you're crazy. So one guy makes ribose in a 0.1% yield with all the other carbohydrates in there, and they identify it by mass spec. And then the next researcher starts with ribose. Say, okay, ribose has been made, so we'll start with that. Now, no, no, start with the junk that he made. You don't buy ribose with all the chiral centers in place that came from a natural source. So say I assemble a dream team. Say we're not in caves anymore. You're in your best labs in the world, and I get the top 100 synthetic chemists, the top 100 biochemists, the top 100 evolutionary biologists, and the top 100 whatever else you want. And I give them limitless funds, and I give them all the carbohydrates, lipids, nucleic acids, and proteins that they want. And I'll even give it to them in the assembled order. All the DNA, all the RNA, I'll give you the information. You tell me the code you want. I'll give it all to you. Now you take those and just make me one cell, the simplest of living organisms, a cell. Make it for me. They'll be like, you're crazy. Oh, what about artificial cell? Artificial cell is you take a piece from one cell and you put in another cell. You look what I made. It's like if I take... The engine, when I, I, I used to work on cars a lot as a kid. You take the engine out of one car, you put in another car. Say, hey, I made that car. You take the engine out of one car, you put That's what they call, you know, artificial cell. You try to make a cell ab initio. I'll give you all the chemicals. You can't even build it. But in some cave somewhere, it happened. So chemistry has not offered any positive evidence thus far for uh, the creation of life or the creation of that first cell. <clears throat> so biology, uh, the, the theory today in most of the textbooks, and again the 60% of uh, professors, science professors who are atheists, they will espouse the theory of philosophy. And so everywhere you read, uh, you will you will run across the phrase, "Well, this evolved to that," and uh, you you will see the threads of this uh, idea of evolution, Darwin's theory of evolution, that all of life, every plant you've ever seen, every flower, every bird, every tree, you and I, every animal, every fish, every bird, all came from. One cell. Now, 
How did that cell get there? Well, the chemists are working on that. They'll tell us one of these days how that first cell got started. But somehow it did, and everything came from that first cell. Now, that is Darwinian evolution. How did that happen? Well, it was called mutation and natural selection. So that first cell divided, began to expand, uh, something caused a mutation there that happened to be a good thing, and so now we have something new. And so all the body plans of everything that exists today originated from that first cell. Well, of course, the first point is that they offer no idea at all where that first cell came from. That's what Dr. Tour was talking about there just a moment ago. And when Darwin uh, developed this theory, in, uh, or he released the book in 1859, so before that, working on these theories, when he released that book, he had no idea, no idea how, how uh, complex a cell is. And you recall our videos uh, just a week or two ago on everything that's going on inside every single cell, trillions of cells in your body are full of machines that are running all the time. Trillions are running in your body all the time. He had no concept of that. He looked at a cell with the best microscope he had and just determined it, uh, uh, termed it protoplasm. It was just a little blob of jelly and assumed that it was a simple thing. Well, of course, he had no idea how complex it really was. He had no idea of the machinery that's in each one of those cells, and he had no idea of the irreducibly complex nature of those machines. And you recall we looked at the mousetrap, simple, irreducibly complex machine. It only has five parts, but if you take out any one part, you no longer have a mousetrap. And that's the idea behind irreducibly complex. So if you have a cell that needs to transport a protein from this end of the cell to the other end of the cell and there's nothing, there's no transport in between, it's not going to work. So it has to all be in place at the same time, at the first moment, in order to have function. That's irreducible complexity. He had no idea about that. And, of course, the, the, the latest uh, development in, um, in this discovery process is that every single cell is full of information. Recall that the DNA in every cell of your body is the equivalent of about 1.5 gigabytes of data. So you have in every cell a computer that is processing one and a half gigabytes of code and telling that cell what to do inside the cell, how to process the amino acids, how to form the proteins, and eventually how to replicate itself because 50 billion of those cells are dying every day and being replaced by 50 billion identical new ones that the body is making itself. Where did the code come from? So 
Maybe we can get amino acids to link up, and maybe in our wildest dreams, we can imagine how that might become a functional protein. But where did the information come from to order the amino acids in the right way so that the protein has function? Where did the information come from? And we saw as we looked at the uh, cell for uh, hemoglobin, we saw that mutations generally degrade information. They don't improve information. And we looked at a video on that talking about how you change random code in a computer program. You, you never get something better. And the, uh, the uh, cell and the, the uh, video we looked at and photos we looked at on hemoglobin uh, demonstrated that as well. Well, this is actually a little out of order in the discussion, but I put it at the end because it just ties perfectly here with the uh, idea of uh, Darwin's um, evolutionary program. Do you remember we talked about the evolutionary tree? And so uh, Darwin envisioned this first cell uh, being at the bottom of the tree and everything branching off uh, from that. And, of course, he made no attempt whatsoever to identify where that first cell came from, but he was confident that these branches then grew out of that first cell. Well, you can imagine that happening. There should be some evidence of that happening. There should be some traces of things that were in the process of changing if that were true. So we should see a frog turn into a tree or something. We should see some evidence of that. Well, in fact, we don't find any evidence of that. Now, there is evidence in the fossil record of life springing somehow into existence very early in the Earth's history. And it went for a very long time as very simple life, bacteria-level simple life. And all of a sudden, as if it were another big bang, complex life emerged in the Cambrian period. Now, we've got a lot of people that, that know how to find those rocks and know what they're looking for and they know how to identify the levels of the rocks. And when they go just beyond the Cambrian, there's nothing there. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. Bacteria, those kinds of things still show up. But suddenly, as if in an instant, a geological instant, complex life sprang into existence. Now, the body plans, that the scientific term for that is a phyla. So... Uh, we represent a phyla, the upright uh, homo sapien. And all the other animals do too. Uh, they have their own phyla. Well, all of those phyla sprang into existence at the same time with no trace prior of changes from a, from a different source. And the interesting thing too is that since then, there have been no new phyla. No new body plans have been found since the Cambrian explosion. 
no transitional body plans. In fact, what's happened, so Darwin had this trunk with the branches going out like this, the tree of life, and scientists are now convinced that that tree is actually turned upside down because what we see through extension, extinction, pardon me, is that the phyla are diminishing rather than expanding. So Darwin's theory made great sense at the time, especially if you were looking for a reason not to believe in God, but he made no attempt, could make no attempt, to identify where the first cell came from. He had no idea of the complexity of the cell. He did not understand irreducible complexity. And, uh, of course, he uh, had no idea of uh, how to answer the lack of transitional plans. Today, fewer phyla today. Yeah. So, uh, in the end, I would say that uh, science has not uh, provided answers to these key questions that would lead us to a develop an opinion one way or the other uh, about God existing. In fact, the evidence that I think we have seen so far says that there is must be some superior intelligence uh, above us. Final part of the talk. Um, how did it all start? How did software emerge from hardware? How did bits come out of stuff? We don't know. Uh, how did non-trivial programmable construction, because it's not... So a living organism just doesn't make any old thing, makes a very, very specific thing, according to instructions contained in the DNA. How did that type of programmable, and importantly reprogrammable, because that's how you get evolution, uh, life gets reprogrammed to produce something different. How did reprogrammable construction emerge just from dumb molecules just banging around and interacting with each other? Um, how did digital information storage emerge? So we're all convinced of the power of digital information processing. Uh, it, I'm old enough to remember the slide rule. That's uh, called an analog computer. Uh, so side rules, you whipped out of your pocket and did the calculation like this. Uh, these days, we think, no, that's, uh, that's really very inefficient. We use digital computation, and now we have uh, uh, digital radio, digital television, digital everything. Uh, and that's because it's a very, very efficient way of doing things. Well, life went digital three and a half billion years ago uh, with life. How did it do that? How did it go from storing information just in things like chemical gradients to storing it in uh, these digital units like uh, uh, nucleotides in DNA and the codons and, and so forth, uh, won't get into. Uh, and then it's all very well to have digital information processing going on, but it's got to do something, it's got to be useful. Uh, if you sequence a molecule of DNA, it's just a sequence. You can't tell by looking whether it's junk or whether it's uh, uh, something that's going to code for a biologically functional protein. Uh, there's nothing in the sequence itself. Uh, nature is blind to such sequences. It's only in the context of the entire milieu, and that may mean much more than just the microenvironment of the cell. It could mean the microenvironment of the organism. Uh, it's only in that context we can say that we have biologically functional or useful information. How did that concept of the global environment having some sort of... Uh, I would still say causal efficacy over what's going on at the molecular level, how did that happen? And let me repeat the answer. 
We haven't a clue. I mean, we really are in the dark. We've got some great ideas, and I have some colleagues doing great work uh, investigating this stuff, but it's at the level of toy models. At the level of toy models, uh, Francis Crick was one of the uh, scientists that discovered the double helix structure of DNA, and so obviously he's a really big name uh, in the scientific community, and uh, this is a quote, one of his quotes, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. Does that sound like a statement of faith? It does to me. I believe that it evolved. I will do everything possible to defend that. It looks designed, but we have to remind ourselves all the time that it was not designed. I would say your bias is showing. <clears throat> so we asked the question in the very beginning, can you recognize design when you see it? You can recognize design. You can recognize intelligence behind the design. You can recognize that someone was involved, in this case, in the action and in the communication of an intelligent thought. And that's what we see here. We see non-intelligent uh, design all around us as well, and we can readily recognize the difference. Maybe the biggest question of all, does God exist? I won't give you a proof tonight, but I hope I will give you some things to think about, things that have led me from being an atheist to becoming a believer and a follower of Jesus. Perhaps the most widespread fundamental assumption in the intellectual West today is that there is no reality beyond what natural science discovers and that there is no authority or good higher than the freedom of the individual. Now, both science and individual freedom are good, but followers of Jesus, like me, have a different view. We believe that both the deepest reality and the highest moral meaning or good or authority are to be found in loving relationship. Why is nature regular? Why does it follow regular laws that even, why can we understand them? And we're so used to these ideas today that we don't realize that they weren't actually that obvious to most people through most time. And the reason for that is that if you just live in the natural world, it doesn't seem to be always that regular. It seems to be capricious. It changes itself all the time. And so what you can show, I think quite, quite um, decisively historically, is that these ideas, these metaphysical underpinnings of science, uniformity, regularity, intelligibility, have deep theological roots. Their roots go back to a, a long history of theological reflection on a God who is faithful and sustains the world, therefore, in a regular way. But uh, just simply the idea that the universe could be expanding, not, not sort of expanding into something, but just that the, the space-time metric changes and that there could be a beginning of time is just incredible. I mean, if you go back to before uh, Einstein's work, and you go to Newtonian world, you know, there's basically a coordinate system. There's X, Y, and Z, and T, right? And these are just fixed, and things happen in this grid, and you describe physical processes and events by putting them in this grid. And the idea that the universe was uh, changing is just completely ludicrous to many people. And then along comes Einstein, and now we realize that space-time not only can expand and contract, but through the work of Hubble, it actually is. The universe is expanding, and so if you play it back, there was a time when the universe was incredibly small and tiny. Um, that, to me, is just 
mind-boggling, and it actually adds to yet again adds to my sort of confidence that uh, that the creation story has some merit. I, I certainly have colleagues who speak very much the way I used to speak. You know, like how can you believe in something that you can't uh, you know prove mathematically or show in this way? And in fact, a friend of mine who's a mathematician used to say that to me: How can you believe in something that? You, you know, you can't prove. I only believe in things I can prove. And then one day he was reading a history book. And his, his friend, who happened to be a Christian, said, you know, why are you reading that history book? <laughs> you can't prove any of that. <laughs> and he realized there, there's a lot of truth that has happened in the past that we can't prove today like you can a mathematical thing. And furthermore, of course, all of our science and our math rest upon axioms and things that we take at faith. So people who think that they can't deal with faith are really just deceiving themselves. So what I'm fond of saying, and I'll say it again tonight, is I don't have the faith to be an atheist. To me, the universe does require an explanation. The philosopher's very ancient question of why is there something rather than nothing is still a valid question. And as many people, including physicist Paul Davies, have pointed out, um, the laws of physics themselves demand an explanation that stands somehow out of science. Whether that is a physical explanation or a spiritual explanation, nature is not self-explanatory. And ultimately, if I had to tell someone why I am a theist, it is because precisely I think that nature, as we see it, requires an explanation. And the more we know of the world from science, the more it begs that explanation. I start by saying there is a God who created the universe, uh, and he's not an impersonal God. He has declared himself as a loving God who seeks a relationship with us and also gives us free will to choose him or not. And our purpose then is found in being in relationship with him. The order and structure of the natural, natural laws to me suggests a God who ordained and conceived those laws. The astonishing complexity of living things to me suggests an architect who cares about those things. The fact that there is something rather than nothing suggests the existence of a creator of that something. And, the fa and indeed, one of the joys I have in studying the natural sciences is that I learn a little bit about what God has done. And in the process, I think I come to understand a little bit of what he is like. He is much bigger, much grander, much more awesome, much more majestic than I would have previously imagined. See, science, it provides a set of tools that are useful for investigating phenomena in the natural world. But as powerful as it may be for dissecting planetary motion and battling cancer, it's not really intended for questions like, why did life forms originate in the first place? And we're free to speculate opine and have our beliefs, but science is not equipped to answer questions like this. This doesn't itself mean, let me be clear here, that there is an answer somewhere else. It just means that we have to be faithful to what science is and that we can't extend the purview of science beyond what it is capable of addressing. The Lord led me to genetics, and I don't have time to get into that story, but it's a fascinating story. Uh, how he led me to genetics, it was not what I had planned to do, um, but my goodness, I'm so happy I did. I can't imagine myself doing anything else, but I see it all as part of his plan to lead me to that and to help me to see um, identity in a whole different way. And when I think about my own identity, I think of Christ and um, how he created us. He created us in his image, so we had identity with him. And then we sinned, and his grace, we talk about grace, his grace, through his grace, he wanted to bring us back in relationship with him and to bring us back in identity with him. 
If we had had uh, another week, uh, I wanted to do a, a short section, well, it would have been a week, I guess, on mathematics. Do you, have you ever thought that that is actually the only universal language? The formulas for math work in any language. It doesn't matter if it's Russian or English or Polish or whatever it is. Math always works. Whatever words are used to describe those symbols, whatever language is used to describe those symbols, it's all math. And physics is all about math. The description of the universe, those 26, some say maybe 30, 26 constants that govern the universe are all expressed in math. And some scientists have said, if there is a God, he's a mathematician. Oh, sorry. Oh, there we go. I'm skeptical of the claim. I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical. We are skeptical of claims for the ability of random mutations and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. Careful examination of the evidence for Darwinian theory should be encouraged. Skeptical. 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 Skeptical of claims for the ability for the ability of random mutations and natural selection to account for, for the complexity. Complexity. The complexity. The complexity. To account for the complexity of life. Careful examination. 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 Of the evidence for Darwinian theory should be encouraged. Scientists are beginning to come around, and uh, there is, as this last video uh, mentioned, a long and growing list of scientists who are signing off on this uh, document that says we are skeptical that Darwinian uh, explanations can account for life. I, I like this uh, quote right here. The first gulp from the glass of natural sciences will turn you into an atheist, but at the bottom of the glass, God is waiting for you. To me, uh, having uh, spent months uh, studying this and preparing uh, for this has uh, led me to the conclusion myself that uh, the 60% of the scientists who are atheists and who strongly profess that view are a lot like this childhood story. They're the emperor who has no clothes. They talk a great game, but the evidence does not support that. So we wrap this part up. <clears throat> We've looked at the science uh, if you came in as an agnostic, I can tell you uh, that the Lord I serve has said you are free to choose. He is not demanding of anyone.
that they follow. But he offers a lot of opportunity for those who choose to follow. He created us to be free thinkers, and you are free to choose. Now, next week, so this will be the last one next week. And if I was speaking to a crowd of agnostics, I would say, why is the Bible the holy book among holy books? Does science have anything to offer? I believe that it does. And we'll look at that next week. I'm calling next week, The Bible Knew It First. See you then.